it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. This week, we're debuting a brand new three-part podcast series with Quentin Tarantino and Amy Nicholson called Quentin Tarantino's Feature Presentation. Here's a quick trailer with more info. If you go to Quentin Tarantino's new Beverly Cinema in Los Angeles, you're going to hear that feature presentation song. And when the movie starts, you're going to step in to Quentin Tarantino's brain. If you own a movie, you own a print of a film, it feels like it's your movie. Consequently, it's like if people really like the movie and they go, wow, that movie was terrific. You know, my response was, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> it was like I, I took credit for it because, well, it was my print. So, and, and, I, and I put the whole thing together to show it. So I, I actually felt like they were complimenting me. This is Quentin Tarantino's Feature Presentation, a new three-part podcast miniseries hosted by me, film critic Amy Nicholson of Unspooled and Halloween Unmasked. Before the release of his new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin and I sat down to talk about five films that he's programmed at the New Beverly, and we wound up talking about his life, his work, and how this movie-crazy kid became a director who defined a generation. Waiting for the lights to go down, and no one knows what to expect. Is this going to be one of those special times? Is it not going to be one of those special times? Is it going to be a forgettable time? The first episode of Quentin Tarantino's feature presentation is out later this week. It is the closest thing to sharing a bucket of popcorn with the man himself. So subscribe now wherever you hear podcasts. Alyssa, it was perhaps the most hyped congressional testimony of the Trump age. The stage was set for either proof of Trump's crimes or proof of the vast left-wing conspiracy against him. It was supposed to be epic, and it was not. When Robert Mueller came to Capitol Hill to testify before Congress, what we got instead was seven hours of awkward accusations and mumbledy demurals that basically just rehashed everything that we already knew at great and exhausting length. What I want to know, since we're talking about rehashing the past and reiterating things we already know, Alyssa, what I want to know from you is what moment from the year 2019 would you most like to relive in a mind-numbing seven-hour congressional hearing? I would say the decision-making behind all four Lil Nas X remixes. <laughs> just, you just want to put Lil Nas X on the stand. Yeah. Put him at the table. Just like, what was the brainstorming process for number two, for number three? <laughs> that is really interesting. <laughs> Presumably it would get easier as they went on. Yeah. Um, but then he just starts tweeting ideas and just seeing if people will tweet back. Sure. I mean, we could even talk about the, the ideas. In some ways, he has a lot in common with our president. You just tweet out a shower thought and just see what the gauge the response and move forward from there. And then bask in the media meta media commentary of your thought. <laughs> I would actually I like meta media commentary. I would actually go I would actually go full meta uh, in, in, to answer this question. I want a seven hour or hell, let's just make it like a 40 hour congressional hearing on the seven-hour congressional hearing that we just had. Oh, my just God. Just break down, like, all the congressional <laughs> you are aides. You All the aides get called. How do we make this decision? <laughs> Mueller has to go into his prep work and everything like that. Trump, you know, the, the, the Justice Department tells him he can say even less stuff than he said before. Anyway, I just, like, the, 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 the more... The extended universe. <laughs> the, more, the more reiterative and redundant we can be, the better. That's That's my take. We are The Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network of media podcasts. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network.
media consumers. Your best friend, Brian Curtis, is in the field today. I am David Shoemaker, joined today by the Ringer's own Alyssa Bereznak. So much stuff to get to today. We're going to talk about the return of Graydon Carter, the end of Mike.com, the way we cover the Tyreek Hill situation, and, of course, the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But back to a segment that I'm calling, as I'm sure we've called it many times before, it's Mueller time. On Wednesday, special counsel Robert Mueller testified before Congress to provide information about his report on the Trump campaign and Russian meddling in the 2016 election, and it was not a shining moment in American history. The New York Times kindly called it nearly seven hours of dry, sometimes halting testimony. There was not a lot of new information. There was a lot of, I don't subscribe necessarily to the way you analyze that, (laughs) and a lot of, I take your question. I take your question. Republicans tried to demonize Peter Schrock and the Hillary Clinton campaign and Mueller himself, and Democrats tried to pin crimes on Trump in pursuit of proof for impeachment or a PR victory or something like that. And throughout the, throughout the testimony, Mueller passively demurred from saying anything of any significance. In a piece written by Peter Baker in the New York Times, Harvard Prof. Lawrence Tribe said, much as I hate to say it, this morning's hearing was a disaster. Far from breathing life into his damning report, the tired Robert Mueller sucked the life out of it. Well, this thing happened. Alyssa, I guess what I want to know is, did, did the hearing accomplish anything, or was it all just a big distraction? I mean, we should consider that a lot of, a lot, a lot of people did not read the Mueller report. That's just something that we should assume. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I only read parts of it. I'll admit it here. Uh, yeah, you read more than me. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think that, like, if you can have an opportunity to um, take a very long, boring thing and uh, turn it into a, a TV show with uh, much easier to digest messaging, then you should do it, especially if you're the Democrats and you need footage for your political campaign. Um, if you need talking points for the future. And so that's exactly what they did. Um, The only problem is Robert Mueller is not the most compelling star (laughs) of this entire production. And uh, it showed through, you know, he had, I mean, I think he was only really compelling in the sense that like, I got like serious Lucille Bluth vibes from him where she's (laughs) like, I don't understand the the question and I refuse to answer it. Yeah. One question that was asked, the first question that was asked when we were watching it at my home uh, yesterday morning was, does Robert Mueller have teeth? Which I weirdly, which I I keep coming back to. He was just like so anti-expressive and just sort of had the, the, I mean, the demeanor that we'll get to uh, of uh, a toothless um, elderly person at times. I just think that he was so, I mean, I don't know what we were expecting it to be. Uh, and I think that you're right. A lot of people haven't read the Mueller report, but the timing of this was just so, it just felt so off. Um, we've covered on the show before. We've, I'm sure we've all discussed uh, off the air about how uh, the Mueller report caught everybody flat-footed, but particularly the Democrats who were, who were so thirsting for its content um, that it was like they've been trying to reset it. And, and part of what, what the part of the problem was the way that the Trump Justice Department was able to frame it before the report even came out. Right. And Democrats ever since have been trying to sort of like like retcon that whole thing and just like restart the like restart the conversation on their terms. This is another instance of that. But I think that what we ended up with more than anything else was. Uh, it's it's pre- like in so much as that was the goal, that goal is perceived to have been a failure. And we have basically 
ended the conversation about the fact that our president tweets really racist stuff and has people chant really racist stuff at his rallies and uh and and the crisis at the border i mean the the, the trump administration created crisis at the border uh i mean all the things i felt like that were actually it seemed like they were bubbling up um that should have favored the democrats as we start this sort of election cycle are now sort of lost in this sad miasma of like rehashing the past right i mean yeah i agree the timing was really bad and i also think that just the fact that this time around the media has already reported ad nauseum about this mm -hmm. report it's just been repeated over and over again so the media think that thinks that they need to take a new angle on this and the new angle is not the actual facts of the the, the testimony or the the report it's like was Robert Mueller old and boring? Yeah. <laughs> like, what was his performance? And, like, the debates are now about the performance and who won and who lost as opposed to, like, oh, yeah, like, let's review the way that our president pretty much obstructed justice. Uh, so I just think that that's, like, an issue and uh, it's kind of, like, a victory for the Republicans. I mean, here I am doing it again. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think that's right. Uh, conservative media, for their part, uh, took on Mueller um, by calling him a doddering old fool uh, or a senile crank or w various other things. I, 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 New York Magazine helpfully compiled most of these tweets um, very eloquently uh, or very, very beautifully. Uh, Eric Erickson, um, we all know him, tweeted, so um, Bob Mueller is old and this hearing is just painful to watch. Uh, Benny Johnson, who I guess is still a thing, joined in by saying uh, Louis Gohmert proves that a clueless doddering Mueller had no idea that his term was that his team was full of vicious Trump hating hacks. Sort of uh, when when Mueller was just like did his, you know, I'm sure said one of his demurals. I keep using that word when he was like, I take your point. Um, it was gleefully perceived by in some quarters of him just like not being aware of anything contained in the question. Um, and I'm sure this joke has been made a million times, but like. Do you think David Koechner, you know, from Anchorman, just like every time he watches Louis Gohmert on TV is just like, please, please run for president. I want to play you. I like I have to. Anyway, uh, Lindsey Graham tweeted Mueller hearing becoming very confusing and sad. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza, who is who should not be a thing anymore, tweeted, uh, is, is it possible that the Republicans have kidnapped the real Robert Mueller and substituted a mentally retarded lookalike in his place? Oh, yeah, a little insulting, I would say. He managed to to hyphenate lookalike, but didn't reconsider anything else in that tweet before he sent it out. <laughs> and finally, Buck Sexton, who I quote mostly just to say his name, Buck Sexton, widely regarded host of The Buck Sexton Show, was one of many propagating the conspiracy theory that Mueller's demeanor indicated that he was a puppet. A literal puppet. Well, yes, some some said a literal <laughs> puppet. Like there was a hand up the back of his shirt. Um, a lot of people on the right, uh, the, the conspiratorial forces on the right seem to be making the claim that because he was so unimpressive on uh, during his testimony, then that is all the evidence we need that he was just a figurehead put there, put in charge of the of the investigation so that all of these arch liberal Democrats working underneath him could run it with him as cover. Does that make do you, <laughs> I don't. I'm, I'm just tossing this off. Do you subscribe to that theory, Alyssa? Do you, do you find anything? I mean, anything I would there? need to be like six galaxy brains out to subscribe to that theory. It, it makes no sense to me. And but you know, it's like you if you want to believe it, that's how you get there. Yeah, I mean, I th um, there was a, a clip that went around um, 
I guess probably mostly in the liberal sphere of, of uh, Chris Wallace, Fox News host, appearing on on Colbert um, that night, and 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 Colbert was insisting that um, it was actually a very important moment in American history that everything there was it was not a failure, uh, and 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 um, you know Chris Wallace went back and forth with him a little bit. Um, I think depending on where you saw this link, uh, one of the two demolished the other one. Well, I guess it depends on how you watch it. Your mileage may vary on how unimpressive Mueller was. I was not overwhelmed by his unimpressiveness. I just think that when he would say, I take your point or, you know, otherwise just sort of I think I think what was missing in Robert Mueller's presentation was like a wink and a smile. And if he had said if he had if he had if he had just like given his non answers with some indication on his face that he understood the ridiculousness of the situation when the Republicans were just like, just like, like speaking with it as fast as an as auctioneers, just like running down the crimes of that galaxy brain crimes of the Clinton administration and all the times they had met with Russians. And I mean, it, it, the, the, it, if he had just given some indication that he, that he was aware of the dissonance, I think the perception would have been a lot different. Yeah. And I, I think that he, he just didn't want to be anyone's political pawn. Yeah. Like, that's just never been his vibe. He is like the most honorable man who like eats, I don't know, Wonder Bread still. Like, I don't yeah. know what Robert Mueller does in his free time, but I'm sure it's very wholesome and American. And and so I, th- I think that like he was just never going to do the James Comey bit. He was never going to try and become a figure for a, justice. Yeah. A really good comparison. Um yeah, I mean, I would. I think that I mean the New York Times newspaper headline was uh, "Mueller defends inquiry and says Russia isn't done." Subhead is a halting delivery at odds with a laser focus on the past. I mean, he, it was an impossible situation that he was put in. You know, I mean, he couldn't possibly. He, he it was sort of a joke, a running joke about how the, how many times he tried to get the page number and paragraph number of the, the, of reference to reference the questions that people were asking him or. Um, but really, I mean, there was too much information for anybody to be, I mean, to, to answer, uh, you know, to be that f- fleet footed in their response. And he was determined to be correct 100 percent of the time. And like you said, he was it seemed like his utmost concern was to not make news. And in so much as the news is only about his inability to make news, I guess that's something of a, a success, <laughs> I guess, to me, from the taking the media angle. I couldn't help but think about the fact that it wasn't that long ago in our great nation's history that our entire like if they if this had happened 10 years ago, uh, we would not have watched it. Our entire interaction with it would have been The New York Times right up the next day. Now we're all I mean, I don't know about all of everyone in the world, but the people who are listening to this podcast, I feel like we're all live streaming it on our laptops while we're doing our jobs. Right. I mean, we're all listening to this. And it, and and t- the Times did a big, you know, a lot of big write ups about the piece. But the first thing that you could, that comes up in the in the Google search is basically a BuzzFeed listicle by the New York Times saying like the five things we learned, the five big takeaways. I mean, and great, that's helpful. But this is just the world we live in now. Um, are we more informed as a society because we're all live streaming this stuff, or do are we do are we missing out on something because like we're responding in tweets in real time uh, instead of actually letting other people uh, digest it for us. I think it's the fact that we're thinking of it as content, you know, something yeah. you can consume and like everyone is ramping up for it. The New York Times had 
a write-up the next day. It had a listicle. It had a daily podcast mm-hmm. episode. And I think that just like because we treat it as like content and, and entertainment and the headline of that day, we also evaluate based on performance, based on how compelling it yeah. is. And so, it, I mean, in a way, it just takes away from the facts of the content. Like you would just read the facts of the investigation in a New York Times report maybe 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I think like we're just all talking about like, oh, Robert Mueller is kind of boring. And uh, it was sort of like um, it was like when Jared talked for the first time and everybody was like, that's not the voice that I thought that he had. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> yeah. Robert Mueller's president. Everyone was just like expecting. I don't know, just like a gravelly monologue out of a Spielberg movie or yeah, something. Yeah, I mean, you he's know? an SNL character. Like, people have this idea of who they're going to be, and and everyone looked to him as a hero, and I'm sure he hated that. And so this whole thing was going to be a deflation from the lore that has been yeah. built up around this dude. The presentation didn't match the jaw, I think, is what we're trying to say totally. there. Uh, to the, the Democratic uh, primary candidates, who, of course, had something to say about all this, um, Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker, at, at least those two, uh, called for either an impeachment or a vote on impeachment to get people on the record about this whole thing. Um, Beto O'Rourke, uh, beloved uh, figure in this podcast, um, <laughs> was not asked about impeachment at a press conference, but he said in a statement that uh, Mueller's testimony adds, quote, urgency to calls for impeachment. Um, I don't know how helpful that is. <laughs> Amy Klobuchar, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, said, in America, the law is king. The king is not the law. It is time for Donald Trump to stop the racism and to leave the White House. Um, a call, not call, I guess. And Bernie Sanders, of course. Oh, yeah, he said he is not exonerated, referring to Trump. Um, and called Trump a racist who's trying to divide the people, the American people up based on the color of their skin. Um, and said that, or he, and, he, and he specifically called on the House to, be, to begin an impeachment inquiry. So, uh, yeah, so there's that. Um, I think that more than anything, I mean, we, we don't have to dwell on this, but I think that, you know, we're, we're at that phase now where the Democratic primary is going to be driving Democratic politics, uh, obviously for the next year plus. And the testimony didn't give anybody any extra ammunition, but it did give us a certain urgency to, like Elizabeth Warren said of, of Congress, now all the candidates have to get their names on the record as well, right? I mean, this is going to be for better or, or better. For, for better or worse. For better or worse. This is going to be the Iraq war vote of this Democratic primary, right? Yeah. I mean, definitely. It, it was this whole thing was like a greatest hits. You know, like I think uh, everyone was kind of doing the reunion tour and, and saying their points like over and over again. And in a way, it just helped each candidate uh, sort of lay out the plane of their political scope. Yeah, in a way. Well, yes, I think that's exactly right. And I think the whole impeachment conversation, as big of a deal as it's been, has has been able to be sort of a secondary issue in the campaign so far, or at least not not, you know, so so central that they could that candidates couldn't avoid it. Um, Joe Biden, for his part, did his best to sidestep and move the kitchen table issues when asked about it yesterday. Um, And we make fun of that stuff. I mean, I think like he's I think that there's a lot of legitimacy to the argument that like, you know, these swing voters are going to vote on the economy and healthcare and stuff like that, not on impeachment. And so and that's I'm sure that, you know, the the argument for not pursuing impeachment. Um, But, you know, I think that the the, the argument on the other side from someone like Elizabeth Warren is we live in like spectacular times. (laughs) I mean, not in the positive way. We, We live in like 
very important, significant times. And, and these sorts of times call for a significant response. But anyway, we'll see where that all goes. Um, before we leave the subject altogether, we do have to acknowledge the silliness of uh, and the memeiness of some of the things that took place. Without, without uh, any real news breaking, we were left to our memes and our other social media devices to kind of commemorate the day. Um, Josh Barrow tweeted, I think the one thing that this day has given us is I take your question as a way to respond to any question we don't want to respond to. Um, Jonah Goldberg, author of Liberal Fascism, amongst other things, <laughs> tweeted, I take your question is the new by Felicia. I'll be looking forward to that hardcover book coming out soon. Uh, the director, Peter Ramsey, uh, said, tweeted, I take your question, I assume, is special counsel for fuck you, idiot. And someone named Zippy Kaufman <laughs> tweeted, I take your question uh, equals, sir, this is a Wendy's. Um, which, if you if he actually just had said, sir, this is a Wendy's over and over again, that might have been the greatest testimony of all time. The internet would have exploded. <laughs> uh, and speaking of the internet exploding, it is now time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week. Uh, the overworked Twitter joke of the week, as I'm sure you all know, is the time where all of media Twitter makes the same joke at the exact same time. Lovey Smith, who is the head coach, former former NFL coach, now the head coach of what the Illinois football, the Fighting Illini, Fighting Illini, uh, gave his first press conference of the season and emerged with a shaved head and a long white beard. And many people, but most importantly, our good friend Darren Ravel tweeted: "Lovey Smith becomes the first person to use new product colon face app live uh, because he looks really old." All the time. <laughs> good so that's a thing. A lot of people, a lot of people tweeted that. Um, let me see. Oh, <laughs> a lot of our old friends popping up today. A couple days ago, uh, dear friend Chuck Todd tweeted, on substance, Democrats got what they wanted, that Mueller didn't charge President Trump because of the OL OLC guidance, that he could be indicted after he leaves office, among other things. But on optics, this was a disaster. Hashtag Mueller hearings. Um, it was a popular Twitter joke to restate everything that Chuck Todd tweeted, um, putting other deplorable historical figures in the place of Donald Trump. Kurt Eichenwald tweeted, on substance, Hitler was a disaster, but on optics, those parades and captivating speeches were winners. Credited to Chuck Todd's grandfather in 1945. Uh, Mikkel Jolet uh, tweeted, on substance, it was clear Ted Bundy violently murdered 30 people and deserves to rot in jail, but on optics, he looked good on TV, so who knows what should happen. Um, and Matthew Iglesias tweeted, uh, I don't know. I, not having watched any of the hearings, I don't know how the optics are going, but I'm told by optics critics that on substance, Mueller said Trump did some crimes, which sounds like a bad look for Donald Trump. I think that's the appropriate take. Um, a lot of people, uh, Tim Duncan, uh, moving on, Tim Duncan, it was announced as coming back to the Spurs as an hey. assistant coach this year, uh, next season, which is really cool. It was pointed out by uh, Hugh Hopkins, press box listener. This is not really an overworked Twitter joke, but so many people opted to write out the Popovich, Greg Popovich's quote about Duncan joining the Spurs, which was uh, is only fitting that after 19 years as Tim Duncan's assistant, that he uh, after I served loyalty loyally for 19 years as Tim Duncan's assistant, that he returned the favor. It's a very endearing and appropriately hilarious quote to come from Greg Popovich. Uh, but as as Hopkins points out, so many people opted just to write out the Popovich quote about Duncan joining the Spurs. Um, we, that maybe we need a new category for just like, like the Twitter press release of the week. Yeah, uh, when thirsty people, when, for engagement. Huh? Thirsty for engagement. 
thirsty for engagement. Um, oh, many, many people. I think this is probably the biggest look of the week, but many, I mean, in response to the Mueller report, many, many, many people, as Max Tanny uh, pointed out, tweeted uh, that the book is actually better than the movie about the Mueller report in reference to him oh, just God. like basically reading out loud. That sometimes the book is actually better than the movie. The Mueller book was actually way better, way better than the movie. Uh, it's usually the case. The book is better than the movie. I mean, this is a, that was a Times reporter that wrote that. I mean, this, this but happens. is it I mean, really? It's pretty boring. I hear. Yeah, no, the book is really bad. That here's the thing. Nobody read the book, so we can all just <laughs> pretend it was good. Right. Uh, and this is like whenever you know when they when whenever they turn like a 800 page novel into a movie. I was like, yeah, the book was way better. It's like, no, you 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 did not read the book. And finally, from friend of the pod. Friend of the pod, also ringer writer, Zach Cram pointed out, um, I think the biggest Twitter meme of the week was definitely, and it just happened, was Steve Ballmer at the introductory press conference, uh, Clippers owner Steve Ballmer at the introductory press conference for Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, as his want was very animated, was very excited, was jumping up and down the screen and screaming and doing everything that we love Steve Ballmer for. It was the overworked Twitter joke of the week to reply to that video was something to the effect of Steve Ballmer hasn't been this excited since the launch of Windows 95. If you made a Windows 95 joke, congratulations. You've just made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, Alyssa, before we move on, let's take a quick break. Today's episode is brought to you by Luminary, a new podcast subscription service with some of the best content around. I'm excited about Luminary because it's the only place you can listen to the newest show on the Ringer Network, which is Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 99. This is an incredibly good podcast hosted by... Stephen Hyden, a lot of voices in that podcast. It tells the story uh, like just—it I mean it's just a great podcast. It tells the story like you never really experienced it before. All the stuff you remember and forgot, but also all the stuff that you never knew. Um, it's a podcast you just absolutely cannot miss. Along with Break Stuff, Luminary gives you access to a bunch of other original shows from innovative, dynamic creators you can't find anywhere else. The Luminary app is free to download. And in addition to the Can't Miss Originals, you can use it to listen to thousands of podcasts, including this one. Whether you're into music, TV, and film, comedy, or sports, Luminary has the right show for you. So check out Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 99, and so much more on Luminary. And you can get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash pressbox. It's all one word. And after that, it's only $7.99 a month. That's luminary.link slash pressbox for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash pressbox. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. All right, and now to the notebook dump. We had a lot, a lot, a lot of notebook dumping to do today. Um, we're going to start off with, um, should we call this one mic drop, I guess? Oh, uh, this is uh, just this week, the Huffington Post um, published a, a, a lengthy piece on the... Uh, fall of Mike.com, which was for a time um, the sort of trailblazing millennial news website. Uh, and then the next thing we knew, I mean, it was it was kind of expert in all forms of media. There was videos. There was, of course, the written word. It was there was social, very adept at social media. It was growing and growing. It was it was a startup as much as it was a media company. If those things are separate things in 2019. Uh, or whatever the current the year we're talking about is, here is it was launched in 2011, um, but as as it just it seeming like seemed like overnight it went from a very central part of our media consumption to literally gone. Um, what Alyssa did we learn from this piece? 
I think the most important takeaway for me was just that media companies should never pitch themselves as like these innovative tech companies that deserve millions and millions and millions of dollars mm. in VC money. It just seems like it's the VCs are always going to expect this huge investment that they get on actual tech companies. Yeah. And they never get the return that that they wanted. Yeah. And because usually a successful media organization is uh, is successful for boring reasons. They hire yeah. good reporters and they are diligent journalists. Yeah. And yeah. and this was not the case at Mike. They kept trying to jump from one trendy thing to another, whether it's a Facebook algorithm or whether it's pivoting to video. We've all heard the sound bites. Mm -hmm. And it, it's all just a way to ensure your future is very frail. <laughs> so in that in that HuffPo piece, I guess to that point, there is a good quote from uh, Esther Bergdahl, who at one point was Mike's copy chief. And she said, journalistic institutions need to be institutions. They need to be able to grow in a healthy and steady way. When I think about things that grow wildly and successfully, I don't think of a media company. I think of cancer. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. she was a very good quote uh, for Great the source. Th source of this, this entire. She's also thing. the one who said something about the not wanting the custom-made Nikes, but a four hundred one k. There wasn't said. a quote attached to that, but that's an interesting part of the story that just kind of goes to show just the sort of startup wackiness of the whole thing. Uh, it says when Mike passed out, uh, they, they had custom-made Nikes, I guess, with the Mike logo or something on them. Yeah, they were made for every employee of the company. This is in twenty fifteen. The company had already raised more than $30 million, but had yet to set up a 401k system, multiple employees said. There was a lot. You mentioned the, you mentioned the uh, social media engagement and, and pivoting to video and everything else. I mean, we've talked about that so many times in the show, but it's been a while. I mean, the pivot to, pivot to video is going to, go, is going to you know, be on the mass tombstone of this media era. It was just like For sure. there, there was a, in media. Here, here's, a, here's another quote from the piece. In meetings, uh, this Jake Horowitz, one of the founders, was at, was known to ask, "Who's sharing this?" New employees received a forty-five minute training focused on shareability. When a headline construction shared well on Facebook, Mike relentlessly published stories that fit that blueprint. Uh, another former employee said that it felt like the analytics team ran the newsroom. We've seen this many times. Sure. We've seen this in places that we've worked, in places yeah. that our friends and Gawker Media started that way. They had a leaderboard in the the main oh, editorial God. office. Yeah, I mean it's it's like something out of a, you know, like out of Wall Street or something like that where they, you know, it's just like they're they're ranking people on a dry erase board and seeing who can get the most engagement and Sure. At some point Gawker I maybe not formally, but but decisively sort of s segregated that part of the the sort of clickbait part of what they were doing off from like the quote unquote like real journalism part of what sure. they were doing. And I think that probably was to um, encourage people, I mean, well, probably to, to, you know, be salved to some hurt egos, but all, you know, because some of the best writers weren't necessarily the best, um, you know, uh, aggregators. But also, I think that that was an acknowledgement of the kind of the bigger point that you're getting at, which is um, this, you can like clickbait will get you hits and get you ads for next month. But like sustainability is based on quality. Exactly. Like no one's going to continue coming to the site if all your headlines are like, you won't believe how this white woman destroyed this other white woman in a racist tweet or like, you know, like <laughs> who knows, like that combination of of words in a headline is just like meant to get you to click for three seconds, but it's not meant to engage. And I remember when I worked at Vanity Fair's website, 
um, and we had just gotten like a, a live analytics tool, there was a lot of conversation about how Vanity Fair articles had like long engagement on them. So we could feel, OK, maybe yeah. maybe we didn't have the traffic that Gawker or BuzzFeed did, but we, like people were actually reading the stories. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's like one thing to think about in all of this is like no one was actually caring if there was people interacting with the content in a good way. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, and, and like we said, I encourage everybody to read the piece. It was a very interesting window into the, uh, into the modern media world that we live in. A couple other quotes we got to get through. At some point, then publisher Corey Hake uh, was in, uh, during an all-hands meeting, was asked about um, the low morale on the staff. And his response was that low morale was normal in newsrooms, <laughs> which may be true, uh. but doesn't sound like the sort of thing you're, uh, that your uh, EIC should be saying out loud. Um, and then, I mean, just in... Separate from just the journalistic issues that are the journalism issues that are raised by the existence of Mike.com, it's a, gr a great moment in, in journalism, great moment in, in getting quotes and in capping stories. Uh, was they got Horowitz, they had a Horowitz quote in this whole thing where he says, As it turns out, it doesn't take much to trick a New York media reporter into writing a story about how great your company is. Um, <laughs> to go back briefly to your point about venture capital and, and journalism. I mean, we're going to have to get to some point in the world where those two things can coexist on some in some way, right? I mean, it's got to be whether or not that venture capital broadly defined uh, understands the necessity of quality. I mean, it kind of seems hard to imagine we'll ever get to that point. But like more and more of our fun money in the world is coming out of like VC, right? Sure. And it's almost impossible to start up a new business, especially one that's housed on the Internet that doesn't get, you know, that that doesn't. Well, I mean, it's not impossible to do without venture capital, but it's just, but it seems like. I mean, I think part of what it is, is when venture capital is getting into journalism, you don't need to as much kill the venture capital part of it, but as much as the, the you know, what's cool, not a million dollars, a billion dollars yeah. idea, right? Like here, Mike launched from nothing in 2014. They had an offer uh, for Twitter offered to buy it for 90 million. They said no. They thought it was worth hundreds of millions in 2017, and then it sold for five million last year. Yeah, so it's clear that they just they thought they had something sure. that they didn't have. You chasing really. this tale of Facebook, and like we've covered before, that Facebook changes their algorithm or changes their priorities, and ever, and you're just absolutely screwed. If you're at, I mean, they're to 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 be serving two gods, you know, to be they're you know to be serving two masters, to have Facebook, you know, on one side is basically your only way out in the world. And then venture capital on the other side that's, you know, these VP, VC people just demanding growth. Yeah, it destroys your identity. Yeah, what, yeah you, if there ever was one, it's absolutely gone. Um, speaking, and I do not mean this awkward segue to be at all um, a commentary on what's to follow. But speaking of venture capital in, in, uh, in journalism, The Athletic is still hiring everybody. Um, <laughs> they've, uh, they're embarking on a sort of quixotic quest to take over um, a lot of the a lot of the territory of the, the UK soccer world, uh, mm. as Brian Curtis uh, has, has written about on the ringer.com. Um, and they just hired a bunch of new NFL writers. Uh, I mean, just like the paragraph of who they hired, uh, starting with Mike Sando, is just incredibly long. Um, our own, uh, my dear friend Chuck Mendenhall, who wrote about uh, MMA in the UFC for the ringer for a long time, is over there now. They just They just have a whole... Um, they have you know a, a big swath of of MMA writers and our and and dear friend, uh, former ringer, I mean former Grantland 
cohort, Rafe Bartholomew, is over there covering boxing now. But there's, I mean, there that's at the end of a lengthy list of of, of other hires. You know, there've been a lot of reports on how many people they have subscribed to the site. According to this piece on the big lead, they had at some point crossed the 100,000 subscriber threshold, but clearly they need several times more than that to endure. Uh, Awful Announcing reported that after they just raised $22 million of VC, they they uh, they they hit a total of $100 million raised. Um, I had Almeida doing some back of the napkin math yesterday, and... Uh, he ran out of space on the napkin, but the, <laughs> but um, it's clear that there that that you know, if they doubled the number of subscribers that they had, um, in that big e- lead piece, it says that they need to get to around fifty five hundred sixty thousand subscriptions. So like, if they multiply it by six, and I think that that's based on yeah, that and that's based on a subscription rate of sixty dollars a year, and everyone's on a discount, and everybody yeah. <laughs> everybody's on a discount. This seems I'm sorry concerning to, to me. <laughs> I just think that it's what we like. We've talked about the Atlantic. I mean, the Atlantic. We've talked about the Athletic uh, on and off mic, and with with some confusion about what the business model is. It sort of like seems like they're setting up a too big to fail thing, which is a really interesting gambit in the modern in the modern media landscape. A lot of a lot of people are saying. You know, or, or a lot of the naysayers are saying they're kind of constructing this company that will they will eventually sell to. I mean, the question is who? I mean, does like sure does Disney come in and say we will give you X number of millions of dollars? It's because ESPN can't afford it, right? I mean, it has to be the parent company bidding on this. But even if it's whoever, whoever's offering this money, like I don't know. Like, does anybody need a hundred college football reporters? I don't. Does anybody that is that is interested in publishing <laughs> publishing personally? Co- <laughs> I do not. <laughs> Does anybody that is interested in publishing this content need this volume of reporters? It's a really weird thing. It seems like if it ever if they actually got sold, it would they would be selling based on the backs of their their biggest names or their, their highest. Uh, I mean, they're the writers who get the most clicks, and then everybody else would kind of be left adrift. I don't know. I hope that this works because it's a really cool site and it's a lot of a lot of really good writing. But you kind of look at these numbers, and it seems like they're like. You feel like the crash has to be coming, right? It's, well, we. The, the, I think the perception is the crash was always coming. Now it looks like the crash might be coming sooner than we thought. I guess that's the fear. Yeah. Um, Check has, in with Elizabeth Warren about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a really good point. Now, moving on, also in the world of uh, sports journalism, this one is a, a, a touchy subject, and I that that's sort of the point of the subject. Um, it was just announced this week that the NFL will not be suspending or otherwise punishing um, Kansas City Chiefs receiver Tyree Kill. Um, please jump in and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris. But like the story, as it um, as as it's most recently told, he has a, he has a history of of domestic violence against his partner. Um, has it has confessed or or has admitted in court to the crime of domestic violence? Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of other accusations swirling around him. Um, no formal charges brought, I, I don't think, since the first one. But then there, this story came out that um, that he may have broken the arm of his two-year-old son. Um, and the, the, But the police chose not to prosecute that. They couldn't find any proof of it. Oh, oh, a recording emerged of his partner saying, accusing him of that. Right. And he, um, he was threatening his partner. And, and, and in that same recording, yes, he threatened his partner. Um, Mina Kimes, a uh, friend of the ringer who who wrote a big piece on how hard it is to report about this story back in 2017 when the when it was first sort of uh, um was on Dan Levitard's radio show this week trying to explain um, her anxiety about 
everything that's happening right now. Let's let's, let's listen to some audio of that. Which he denies not only that he abused the child, which he has been consistent on from the beginning that he did not do it. Uh, and I think that played a role in him not getting suspended. He also denies the 2014 incident that I just described the police report. From. That he denies that even though he pled guilty. Yes. And, and like, Dan, you know, people plead guilty all the time to things they don't do for reasons of money or not having a lawyer. There were some lawyer issues, but there was also a police report describing phys- pretty graphic physical evidence that I think people have, do not know about, which is why I wanted to read that. Anyways, I, I'm not surprised necessarily that the NFL didn't suspend him because of the abuse allegations, because it obviously there, I guess, wasn't conclusive evidence. The cops didn't pursue it. I thought they would come down on him because of the verbal threat, given the fact that this is a woman he has a very disturbing history with, right? The history that I just described. So given that context, for him to come out and threaten her, which is what that was, and that's something that the league has suspended players for before, Jimmy Smith you can on the Ravens, uh, I am surprised they did nothing. That whole clip is very strange. I love Levitar, but there was a weird dismissiveness. I mean, this is sort of beside the point, but not for nothing. But he he ends he ends with talking about how how the NFL is incentivized to punish Tyreek Hill because the media, the Twitter backlash only works in one direction. Uh, to me, that just sounds a whole lot. I mean, that that reminded me of the uh, the the wacko notion that scientists are incentivized to to to. Uh, say that climate change is real when it's really false. I mean, yeah, that's the, from, I, from the I point of view that, that. No, yeah. but like the idea that you're incentivized to punish him it's when you're so clearly not. Yeah. I mean, you're incentivized for your most exciting players to be on the field, right? If you're yeah. I mean, that's, that's right. their you're, MO, yeah. You're incentivized to not piss off the owners if you're Roger Goodell. You're incentivized to make money for your sport. You're not incentivized to worry about what Twitter says. If they were incentivized to punish him, they would have punished him. It's pretty, pretty simple. To yes. Me. Yeah. I don't know. Well, but I think that that's in, a, in an inverse way. That's the question that we're getting at. Right. Because as Mina uh, says, said in that in that interview and as many other people have brought up in writing um, this week, the biggest question is not, you know, why Roger Goodell didn't arbitrarily punish him for uh, child abuse when there's no proof that he did. I mean, because that's that that's a. That's an old Roger Goodell thing to put to to punish somebody for the perception that they may have done something wrong. And then but but it does seem like they should they could have and should have punished him for threatening his partner on that audio tape. Especially given the history and this uh, existing police report that said that she was roughed up. And I think that that's what it all gets to, which is that, like, if you want to be an ad hoc police force, if you're going to take it upon yourself to be the moral arbiter for every player in the league. Then, you, then just like real law enforcement, there is a necessary aspect of transparency. You have to, people have to be able to see how you reach a decision. And if the answer is like, there is literally nothing to any of this, and that entire audio tape was like, you know, an audio deep fake or something, and that didn't, I mean, if, if, if that's true, which I, which I don't, clearly don't believe it is, like that has to be available for us to know. So we're not just throwing our hands up in, in dismay. Right? Yeah, like the, there's not some dark boardroom meeting with a bunch of, powerful people who are just making this decision, which I th- I mean, that's what I'm imagining now because we have no transparency in how the decisions are made. Um, I mentioned the, t- the 2017 piece that Mina Kimes wrote. I do want to break down one specific p- quote because uh, it's um, it, it's it goes to the dissonance of reporting on this thing because it's really hard for sports report when, 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 when we talked last week about how it's important for sports writers to be able to touch on political subjects and bigger ideas than just the game, right? But it is also difficult to touch on this from that when you're working from the standpoint of someone that's 
covering a sport and you're not just like always zoomed out. You're not always looking down from 10,000 feet. Uh, so this is from tw her 2017 piece. Mina Kimes wrote, over the past two months, I've listened to my colleagues and peers struggle to talk about Hill. It feels wrong to praise him for his gifts while ignoring his flaws, but it also feels strange to intermingle talk of jet sweeps and screens with casual reference to domestic violence. I co-host a fantasy football show and I can't imagine working the subject into our usual conversation. And this is a this is a, a an imagined quote. Tyreek Hill is now averaging double-digit points on a weekly basis, making him a great flex option. And by the way, two years ago, he pleaded guilty to domestic abuse by strangulation. Um, she acknowledges that that dissonance, but that dissonance is everywhere. Um, I just, you know, just combing through, briefly combing through news reports after this happened, I saw Mike, Fre Mike Freeman at Bleacher Report. The headline of his piece was, NFL's clearing of Tyreek Hill opens road to potentially historic Chiefs season. <laughs> oh God! Uh, which is um, which is is interesting, especially because he actually in in a in a parenthetical paragraph in the piece um, gets to that point that we were discussing earlier. He says it's remarkable to me how a player who on tape is physically threatening a woman and isn't suspended for that act alone. Um, uh, but but this is a debate. This is the end of that is. But this is a debate for another day. And then the next line is, in other words, the Chiefs have the makings of what could be a historic offense. I mean, it's just <sighs> like this is it's this is what we're it, this is the struggle that every sports writer deal you know covering the subject deals with. Um, Joel Corey at CBS Sports quotes Andy Reid, the the coach of the Chiefs, who made, went out of his way to open his first press conference of the season, I believe, by saying, "Let's talk about Tyreek." I know that's a hot topic. Um, the law enforcement side of it, there's been statements on that. There's been statements made by the Chiefs. There's been statements made by Tyreek. And with all those, we're obviously, we're comfortable with Tyreek coming back here. And then he basically ended by saying, and that's all I'm going to say about that. So he was like, I want to talk about this thing up front that you guys all want to talk about. And my statement is that we're not going to talk about it. It was, it was a very impressive performance. I mean, for just avoiding talking about something altogether. Um, I don't know. What do you do, Alyssa? I know you I mean you don't write about sports on the regular, but like, how do you, how do you, how do you do this? I think deep down it's, it, the, the sort of lack of ability to sort of just spend some thoughtful time about like what those allegations mean mm -hmm. has to do with maybe the diversity of people who cover these sports. <laughs> um, it's not uh, surprising to me that Mina was the one who, had to be serious about it on the Le Batard show. And I think that like, you know, there were moments in that video where they're like, cut to the Top Gun <laughs> uh, <laughs> video, or like uh, describe the Top Gun video as she's looking up the court documents. And it's like, maybe we could just all be silent during that time. Like maybe we could all consider what it means to be a victim of domestic abuse. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the, like that is just the issue here. And uh, you see it in almost every industry. You see it in tech with sexual sexual harassment allegations. Mm -hmm. um, you see it, obviously, in the entertainment industry. You see it everywhere. It is a little bit... I mean, I mean this is, might be just my own naivete, but it is a little bit easier to, to report on imaginarytechcompany.com and and to, when mentioning their CEO to, act, to have in a parenthetical that he was accused of sexual harassment and no charges were ever filed and then continue on with the story... Because I think that, in some level, the audience is 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 to some degree more open to that, and it and it and it's maybe part of the the broader narrative in a way that people go to fantasy sports websites and going to just ESPN.com or or like actively upset when you know 
the chocolate touches their peanut butter. Or sure, sure. Like there's you're actually losing a player who might mean like something for your team or mm -hmm. something for you, the entertainment you experience. And if, that you're, year. and if you're reading a piece that's just like about the Chiefs offense and how great it could be. Yeah. Um, right. You're losing a member of the team who could be valuable as opposed to like knowing, I mean, truly cares if Mark Zuckerberg is fired or something like that, even though he hasn't been yet. <laughs> and he was never accused of sexual assault, to be clear. Like, I'm just yeah, giving examples. There was there was one piece. Um, uh, let me see if I can pull it up. There was there was one piece that I apologize for not for not knowing who wrote it, but about that, that talked about how the Chiefs could structure Tyreek Hill's next contract to Ugh. avoid getting in an awkward situation if he ends up going to jail. I mean, these are things that like, but it's weird because as sports fans, these are the things that, that people want to know on some level. Like you want to be able to Google that. Like someone's got to win that SEO race or maybe not. Maybe they don't. Maybe that's just it. Um, but it's. It, it kind of reminds me of the conversations around Louis C.K. Like everyone's like, well, I really liked him as a comic. And mm -hmm. uh, like, can he does he have to be punished for this one thing? I don't know. It's sort of like if we did a top wait with the ringer ranked a bunch of. TV episodes. I don't even remember if Louie made the list, but like mm. if but if you ranked the top TV shows of the 21st century or something like that, do you have to say do you, if you're if you're deter if you're if you mention the show, do you have to go into a a dissertation about the accusations against him? Yeah, it's a, a great question. question. Yeah, the frame of that says to me maybe not because it's like it's a like two sentence. It's kind of hard to deal with, the, with, with yeah. yeah, it's kind of hard to deal with the level of like autobiography and introspection in that show, particularly without getting into it. But this is, you know, I think that there's it's it, it's easier to separate. It's easier. To, it's, um, maybe maybe it's easy to separate a real person from the person in the uniform with the helmet on. You can't even see his face. It's all he's just fantasy numbers. Sure. And I think that that's what makes it. I mean, but but that is really uncomfortable, and it's really hard for us as sports writers, but more importantly, sports fans. I think to balance that whole thing. Um, Tara Sullivan at the Boston Globe uh, wrote a, a good piece called "NFL: The NFL System of Justice Is an Inconsistent Mess." Um, and she talks about the fact that it, that it, I mean, a lot of personal experience, like that you were mentioning before, and how, um, uh, well, this is just from the end of her piece. I'll just read it. Percentages, and this is just talking about like you know our national averages. Percentages guarantee behaviors ranging from antisocial to criminal. I mean, that's just a sad truth of society. I mean, she's saying there will be these terrible people that make up NFL locker rooms because statistics tell us that. Um, but what feels so mind-numbingly the same is the NFL's inability to deal with these incidents with a hint of consistency, any shred of credibility, uh, or even one iota of accountability. And I think that's what we keep coming back to is that the NFL wants to lead. They want to be the moral arbiters of the sport, but they leave us in the state of just like utter confusion every single yeah. time. And um, you know, there's a lot of times where like law enforcement doesn't do what we perceive to be their job. Jeffrey Epstein, which is going on, you know, this whole thing is mm. going on now. That was an example of that for a long time for a lot of people. For sure. But at least you can complain to law enforcement. At least you can tweet about it. At least you can like be an active, you know, and you, you can actively protest the situation with the NFL. It just seems like you're screaming into the abyss. And if even if Roger Goodell or whoever heard you, like it doesn't make any difference at all. They're, they're not abiding by any rules. Anyway. Um, there's no rules for this in general. And um, I guess we're just going to leave that subject at that until we deal with it again. Um, one more thing before we get out of here. Graydon Carter. Former boss of mine. Former boss of yours. The great oh. Graydon Carter. 
Um, one of the brains behind Spy Magazine, of course, and, and uh, the, the editor-in-chief for years of Vanity Fair. He left Vanity Fair in 2017, which is unsettling that it was that long ago. It seems like it was a couple months ago to me. Uh, but anyway, he's back, uh, back on the scene with his new project, which is a email newsletter, I believe, yeah. called Airmail. Um, if you ever wondered, uh, if you ever missed the Greg and Carter era of Vanity Fair, wondered what parts of Vanity Fair were most central to Graydon, well, Airmail is here in full high-flown form to remind you with pieces like uh, Faulty Towers, the Chateau that ate Province. Also, that is where Graydon was hiding out this whole time, Province. <laughs> FYI. Um, <laughs> there is a hashtag Me Too takes the stage. Um, subtitle, In London, Mammoth's new Weinstein play repels critics but delights audiences by John Lahr, of course. And uh, First Scam on the Moon, Apollo 11 was one st small step for man, one giant leap for some German philatelists. Um, this is really interesting stuff. Oh, also, sorry. Thanks for throwing this in, Chris. Instagrown, The End of Silent Suffering by Cassie David. That's Larry David's daughter, yes. FYI. She oh. was an intern there. Yeah. Um, in I mean, attending this kind of reemergence was a, uh, of course, a New York Times interview with David Marchese um, where... Carter sort of has to face the music about, um, well, a subject we just mentioned, but we covered recently his uh, the Vanity Fair profile of um, Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein, yeah, and and uh, and and their inability, their their unwillingness to sort of go on the record about the, the accusations against him at that point, um, and also just more generally his sort of hobnobbing with the rich and powerful, and the perception that that um, that that affected his editorials his his editorial decision making is that is that right Alyssa yeah I think so I think it's more like so you were friends with these people were you really in position to cover them yeah uh it, overall Graydon is is I would say dismissive of those charges <laughs> to say the least um there was a lot of like uh, journalism was different back then and I think that that's true I mean there are a lot of in ways that the, the industry has changed institutionally um but, you know, there were a lot of very pointed questions by Marchese that made you sort of want to read into that saying that he knew more than he was saying out loud, etc. Um, but my favorite part of the whole thing was when in the middle of this discussion about hobnobbing with the rich and powerful, uh, the New York Times runs, I believe, a Getty <laughs> photo of uh, one of the the uh, Vanity Fair. Was this one of their Oscars party? Yes. <laughs> uh, where, where Graydon is sitting with. Barry Diller, Anna Scott, Carter, Mick Jagger, and Fran Lewis. <laughs> I love Mick Jagger and Fran Lewis just sort of thrown in. There's a, there is a waiter uh, behind Greg and Carter. It does seem interesting that the guy who founded Spy Magazine, you know, just became, became part of the culture that he ridiculed. And is he unaware of that now? Or just in denial of it now? Or is it just part of, I mean, maybe it's as simple as like, it's, admitting it would not be part of the brand. He has to yeah. just perceive, he has to continue as if that's that none of that is true. He was clearly very counseled by whoever his PR person is to just toe a really straight line and say like, yeah, I I was part of a system and I followed the rules of the system. And in hindsight, with the Me Too movement, now I realize maybe that system kept other people down. And that's the most he was willing to give the interviewer um, I'm not sure he really even admitted that much. He kind of was just like, I was part of this system. And uh, yeah, like, I don't know. He doesn't seem apologetic about it. I think his answer about um, diversity and hiring the, the most talented writers was really lazy. 
Uh, I think we've heard that time and time again. We heard that from the Atlantic's editor-in-chief very recently, that he was just hiring the most talented people yeah. to write cover stories. And it, you know, it, it's pretty obvious that those most talented people were his friends or people who he was connected to who happened to be like from privileged, well-known families who were white old dudes. <laughs> you know, the, like those are the things they all had in common. It, the, he played a gatekeeper role in this instance where he was letting in talent that he thought would be good for the magazine. And that just happened to be the voice of like wealthy, rich white men. Yeah. Um, it was reported, I think, in Daily Beast that he the reason why he left Vanity Fair was that he was going to have to um, fire a lot of those people. Uh, he, they were going to have to cut, uh, you know, the payroll pretty dramatically. And a lot of, um, you know, his great old friends who were writing, you know, who were on the masthead as contributing editors and writers and stuff like that were making way too much money. And, and they uh, he left rather than uh, asked him to take a pay cut. As someone who sat next to the accounts person, I can confirm that. <laughs> I heard like insane salaries while I was there. <laughs> you know, some of the best parts of the interview were the parts that the, the answer was so brief that you can imagine that Carter assumed they weren't going to be published at all. Uh, that's the way that Marchese rolls, and it's usually a very effective way of doing it. He tends to interrogate. Yeah, and 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 you know, you, you know what you're getting into too when you when you go in with him. Although he, he seems to find a way to surprise you. Each and every time. But he does, you know, he does kind of go right from the the Vicky Ward um, Epstein story to just the general story of celebrity and, and wheel greasing and whatever else. And, and and those two things are connected, certainly. I mean, it, wheel greasing happens. It's not the end of the world to say, like, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine to get access, right? Yeah, I mean... The things that he was asking about definitely happen in the magazine world. Yeah. Like the fact that Green Carter just denied all of that stuff altogether. Like, I guess he could deny it because he was never involved in the like dirty negotiations of his magazine. He got to do all the fun stuff and he would didn't want people to present like the gross underbelly of the magazine to him. He was at such a removed level. I mean, like I was an intern there first and I like just saw the way that interns were basically used to do his own personal bidding, like pick up dry, dry cleaning. And, um, you know, like there was a whole book project where I think they were just having like a bunch of books signed for his son for his birthday or something. <laughs> so like, the, you know, the, these are things that like a super celebrity editor in chief like Anna Wintour or Graydon Carter can get away with within the Condé Nast organization. And I, I just think that like having that kind of outsized power and sense of importance, there's no way you're not going to understand that that translates to, OK, we're going to make exchanges because we have power, cultural power here, too. And we know how to get ahead based on connections. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, I think his his main defense to all that was that was that the Vanity Fair was too was so elite they didn't need to uh, do any make any trade offs. Maybe at the beginning of his tenure that was true. <laughs> uh, I, I just well, don't... I don't think it matters if it's true or not because I think that's sort of an admission that those things take place, an implicit admission that it would happen at Vanity Fair if they needed it to. Right. But anyway, it, I mean that's all kind of Great beside point. the point. I think that. Um, it's ha it's it's good for all of us and net positive to have Greg and Carter back in our lives. Uh, <laughs> airmail for all the joking I was doing is was a fun. Read. I'm glad I now know that Italian women do not like Elena Ferrante. Oh God, I, I that's it was news. <laughs> Great to me information. Um, there is there's a big. It feels like there's a big gap between like 
NBA writer Mark Stein's weekly newsletter and what Greg and Carter is trying to do here. Are, are we moving into an era of everything being newsletter, being email? I will say website formatted? you could just tell he just doesn't have a mind for the Internet in a lot of ways. Like he's still really attached to like magazine type formatting that doesn't necessarily make, make sense for like SEO reasons that isn't grabby, that won't do well on Twitter. And, you know, th- these are things that I think the the web team, when he was they, it was working with Graydon Carter and when he wanted to translate the magazine online, always sort of struggled with because he, he would always want something like, let's like do like a napkins worth of cocktail party notes. <laughs> yeah. and Like, let's like you just find a way to make that look good online. And it's like the answer is that that is not something that should exist online. <laughs> so I, I think like uh, in a way, airmail is like a great. Um, example of th- that that consistent vision of his, and I really enjoy it. Like I don't think there's anything wrong with it, um, but but you know it 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 can be entertaining as someone who's worked the content mills on the internet for a long time. <laughs> um, well, that is the end of this week's um, internet content mill. I should say formally that David Shoemaker guesses the strain pun headline will never exist <laughs> as long as Brian <laughs> Curtis is not here. Uh, I refuse to indulge. But it will be back next week, presumably. Next week, we are uh, on a kind of special schedule. We're covering both of the Democratic debates. So I guess is that Tuesday and Wednesday night, we will be recording late night, late night shows. And um, those will be up either late at night or first thing in the morning. So you can check back in with us there. We'll be talking about the debates, but we'll also be talking about all of the regular fun stuff. So um, please keep sending in overworked Twitter jokes. Keep sending in, I guess, train pun headlines if you have them. Alyssa, thank you so much for doing this. Glad to be here. Thanks to uh, our our producer, Jim Cunningham. Thanks to Chris Almeida, uh, our researcher and third voice in the room. We'll see you next week. I want to talk about this thing up front that you guys all want to talk about. Your best friend, Brian Curtis, is upset when the chocolate touches their peanut butter. Brian will be back next week. And my statement is, fuck you, idiot. That's all I'm going to say about that. Who's sharing this? I take your question. Does anybody need 100 college football reporters? I take your question. Fuck you, idiot.